Hello, my name is Evan Jacobs and welcome to the Orange County Hardcore Scene Stir Aftermath podcast. These interviews are part of an ongoing series chronicling the hardcore punk music scene in Orange County, California and sometimes elsewhere. They are an addendum to the film Orange County Hardcore Scene Stir. This is a documentary I made that chronicles the 1990s hardcore punk scene. You can stream Orange County Hardcore Scene Stir on Vimeo. For $2 a month, you can watch every Anadimia film by subscribing to Anadimia Films Unlimited on Vimeo. Links for all this stuff are in each episode description. To support this podcast, please like, rate, and review it. Also, please subscribe to Anadimia Films TV on YouTube, where you can view all of these podcasts in their original video form. But it's also interesting, again, how that ties back into A Place in the Sun, this movie from the 50s. And generally, when we think of movies from the 50s, everything is perfect. Everything is pristine. And it's yeah, almost it's, like... It's not perfect in this movie. Yeah. Right, right. And it's the first thing. And, like, and I want to say this because I know you're a film, film buff. It, it's an important movie because if you, you know, when we were growing up, the greatest actor of Robert De Niro and Al Pacino and Christopher Walken and uh, was it John Caviezel, the guy who died. Who's the guy from Godfather? Is it? John, John Cazal. Yeah, 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 John Cazal. Yeah, John Cazal, yeah. Brilliant actors. They're all method actors. Harvey Keitel and, and the Scorsese thing. And they love Brando and they love James Dean. Those are their touchstones. And Brando loved Montgomery Cliff. Like, Montgomery Cliff is really, if you change, if you follow, I was a, you know, research film history for a while, too. That was another weird passion. I mean, he's like the first method actor. And, the, and that movie, movies change. Like, in the movies, the way Hollywood worked, because it was, you know, basically, it's, you know, you don't think about how young it, it, that industry was in the 20s and 30s. It's a brand new industry. It only been around 20, 30 years, right? And 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 people, and this is before when the talkie started, it's like, what, 1921 or 29? I mean, it's, 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 you know, really fresh. And so the way the movies got portrayed, those old movies, they're, they're, it's so like stagecraft, right? Because it all comes from, from Broadway and, and stage. So the way they act in these movies is very like projecting. It's very like dramatic, and the dialogue is like yeah. And it's just like the characters are so like over the top the way they speak. It doesn't seem honest. With a place in the sun, which is not the first of these movies, because you know Casablanca is like that too in some of these, but but it's dark. Like it's a dark thing, and it's a real. And Montgomery Clift is playing a flawed character, and he's this neat man. Right. And I found that like like I said, it must have been a really it's a book and a movie, but it must have been kind of shocking at the time because it's just like. You didn't have your hero be a bad guy, you know, like your heroes, like, you know, usually like the guy, he's like, you know, Errol Flynn coming to save the day. But it's like, this is a, a fractured guy. He, he talks like a real person. And I think that um, it's a powerful thing, too. Like, so I think it all, like I said, it all works in, in one with the, with the lyrics in the album because it's like, uh, you know. That. No, 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 because again, that sort of ties into Trigger Man. Like, when you guys came up as a band, it would have been very easy for Gavin to do a third incarnation of Carrie Nation. Like, he literally, I mean, seriously, yeah, yeah. He, he really could have. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, this scene, great scene, but there was, you know, there was a time when all the bands, like, kind of, like, I remember you looking at, like, a flyer for, like, a listing of, like, these shows. And like Ice was playing, and you were like, "Dude, you guys should be higher up on the bill simply because everything from here on down is just kind of the same thing." And yeah, yeah. and it's interesting how 
like tying it back to a place in the sun, it's almost like the trigger man of, of movies of the 1950s. Like it doesn't really fit. Like when people talk yeah, about that time. Yeah, yeah, that's a good, that's a good analogy. I like it. I'm gonna use that one. But good. I think, yeah. uh, <laughs> well, I, think, I think I think with Trigger Man, you know, you understand. Like Gavin saw Minor Threat. Like Gavin's been around. You know, I never saw Minor Threat, but I was going to shows in '84, '85. So like, and at the time, I we were all in punk rock. Like. It, you know, there's not straight, there wasn't a straight hardcore scene. There was like a punk and hardcore scene, like seven seconds would play with aggression and exploited with headline or whatever, GBH and SNFU. Like, and then there was uniform choice. And instead, and then you got a straight edge band kind of on these fields, and, but only one. And what I think it got for Galvin and definitely for me is by the time we started Trigger Man, it was just all straight edge hardcore bands. Like the scene was gone. Like, like people are saying, because that's such a niche of another niche, once it got solely in the straight edge hardcore, it got smaller and got less sophisticated. And I'm not knocking any of these bands. I love all these bands. But I'm just saying it's like it just became a one kind of opera. It's like, here you go. There's five bands who are all saying the same thing and all kind of just playing the same type of music. There's no punk in here anymore. There's no, like, there's nothing different. And it's boring. And I know Gavin was not, was not interested in doing a band that sounded like that. I mean, I think we all really love Bad Nasty. And we kind of wanted to maybe go that direction more, like, kind of like, the, the Revolution Summer Era Discord stuff. Um, looking back at it, I definitely done some things different in, in, in how we approached it. I, I didn't understand a kind of half-assing it all the way because it's like, going to school, and now I'm going towards Quicksand Rage Against the Machine, and now I'm doing Trigger Man, and we would practice like once a week, or and that's just, you know, when, when you learn that Kugazi practiced eight hours a day, five days a week, where they weren't touring like a job, and you're like, oh, what? Oh, that's what you do. Like you take it. If you're going to do this, you fucking do it. Like you, you're going to do it. You got to put everything you got into it. You can't just go like, hey, we're Oh, we got a show Saturday. Let's practice on Tuesday. Like you got to bring it. And I think that, I think the music's re really suffered too. And Trigger Man is definitely part of that, where it's just kind of like, you got on a lot. There are a lot of bills where not all the bands were, you know, you're dealing with punk rock, so the equipment's never great. And it sounds like that Ice House, where we all played all the time, like, fucking brick warehouse. I mean, you couldn't have worse acoustics. No, only, only Popeye could make that place sound good. You know, like, the rest of us, I, I remember, like, if you look at these Trigger Man videos, Ball Check, Brian Ball 671 from the Toe Jam, and it just, it all is just like, it's just noise. I mean, it sounds awful. Well, one thing I always enjoyed about the Trigger Man shows is you never knew what you were going to get in terms of, like, the songs. Like, I never knew, like, what the song order was going to be. And also, I didn't know what was going to happen when you guys played. Like, there were some nights you guys, you would you would come on stage, and I almost sort of felt like you didn't want to really have any confrontation with the audience. You just wanted to go and play the damn songs and just perform. And then there were some nights... Where, like, I thought you kind of got up on stage and, like, if Gavin broke a string, that's when you would kind of seize the moment, talk talk to the crowd. Yeah, I, I mean, I was just new. I had never been in a band. Like, you're just figuring out. Like, looking back at it, I would have been a lot more, and any any band should have done this, but Trigger Man, especially, we would have been a lot more regimented and focused and a lot more consistent. Because what you're saying is true. Some nights it was like, I was in this different groove and I was using a mic stand, which I kind of was into. And then some nights I'm like, telling jokes and like making, you know, changing the lyrics to be good. So, so and then like, that's a little bit of insecurity too, I'm sure. Like, cause we were, but I, and I was, you know, Gavin was a bigger, you know, he was from No Answer, Carrie Nation. So he carried the weight 
and we always deferred to him and he was a great, he's a great leader. It's not like he did a bad job, but I wasn't able to flex, you know, now I've obviously, the thing comes with age is wisdom. You look back at it, you're like, well, dude, like I was, we, stuff. we had so many ideas we never did. Like, like it would have been great to have been a little bit more hungrier and, and, and just pushed it more because, because the problem with trigger man was we wanted to push it, but we also kind of played into the scene and we knew the weirder we were getting, the less we were being accepted because it wasn't hardcore, but those were the, it's a weird thing. That, you know, that's why I have so much reverence for Sensefield because when Sensefield started, they went out into LA and just played these shows in front of like 20 people, 30 people. They wouldn't touch the hardcore scene because it wasn't hardcore. And John and Chris and those guys were like, no, we're doing this type of band and we're just going to do this. And we're going to be in the, you know, like, and eventually it kind of, they kind of came back into it through revelation, but that takes fucking balls. We were doing the chicken shit way, which is like, well, we can play Grill Biscuits coming down. We can play that show because we're friends with those guys. But we don't really, we weren't really wanting to do that kind of music. And I just wish, like, I go back, I would have just been like, no, let's push it. Let's, let's, let's go into LA. Let's play that way. Let's get our live show a little bit more dialed out. Like, looking back at now, that's what I was saying earlier, if we played live, I, I, I think Sugar Man should have had visuals. I think Sugar Man, like, it would have been great because we were all into editing you and I, making these editing movies and stuff. So, like, we have the capabilities. It would have been rad to do a projection behind us of, like, old movies and weird shit and dark imagery and kind of darken the light and, and kind of change the aesthetic of our set so that it was more of an experience and we could get away with playing more slow, mid-tempo songs without people going like, can't stay inside of this, you know? I was, when I was doing the research for this, Listening to Dead Like Me, um, I forgot, listening to Insulate and Gun in the Hand that John Bunch sings on those. Yeah. When you hear that now... Gun in the Hand, it's Gun in the Hand, I can't listen to that song. I was I just about to ask, like, so when you listen, like, what... The song's about suicide. Right. The song, the song's about suicide, and, and John Bunch is singing it, like, right. haunting. Um yeah, I mean, I, I, I love John Bunch's voice, and we were really tight then, and, and we were, me and Gavin went to, the, the two bands we saw so much of were Rage Against the Machine and Sensefield, because Rage Against the Machine was playing in LA, like, I felt like once a week, and both bands blew us away for different reasons, like, but we were up there, me and Gavin constantly, we're, you know, he would drive, pick me up, my mom's, and we would be in LA watching either Sensefield or Rage or, you know, some other bands like, you know, Underground Wolf, we loved Wolf, so we'd go see that a lot. Um, but it, it, uh, oh, we're talking, we're talking about John Bunch. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got, yeah. Kind of yeah, like, kind of like the haunting sort of. Yeah. So I, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm sorry. Sorry. I got sidetracked, but I was thinking John Bunch. That's why. But the problem is, is, you know, we want I love John Bunch's voice. He was gracious enough because I have limitations in my vocal range and I kind of like, what I think is good about this Trigger Man record is by now I can I, I know where I'm at vocally. I can sit in like the space. I have a very I can work around the space, and I know what to do in it. So it sounds a lot better in Trigger Man. I you know I tried to do things in the early days that I couldn't pull off, and I felt we needed another singer on some of the stuff to kind of you know like John Bunch singing those songs would be like fucking amazing. He sings great cool. on that record. Like it's it's, yeah. it's it's sort of like a cameo, like in a movie, like for when he comes on. Yeah, but it's and, amazing. And I've always done that. Like I've so since then I've done that. So like when we got when we put that Learning the Lion record out, uh, I got Jeff Pizzotti from Naked Reagan uh, to do a song, and, and Naked Reagan is one of my favorite bands of all time. And so like to me, I was just like, this is great. I, I have two records. I have John Bunch on one is great, and then have Jeff Pizzotti going on this new Trigger Man record. 
besides the choir, I have, we got Matt from the Bronx, which is one of my favorite bands, and Matt and me are dear friends, he's my, my favorite guy. Uh, he sings on the, a song called Long Way Down, and then we were able to get Peter Kortner from Dag Nasty Field Day to do a song called Dissolve, and he does some vocals at the very end, uh, but just little things. Um, and I, I'm, it's just kind of a thing, you know what I mean? Like, if, it, if there's ever another Sugar Man record, there will be at least one guest performance. It's kind of not expected. It doesn't really tie into what we're doing. Like, Jeff was live for Naked Reagan on a Trigger Man record. And now looking back, I'm so happy John's on Dead Like Me because, like, John Bunch sings on a Trigger Man record. Yeah, it seems like two songs, and he, he crushes it. Right. You know? Well, and then with this, like, the Peter Corder stuff, I mean, Matt's great. But Pete Corder's like a hero, vocal hero of mine because I just think, I, I love him. I think he's the, the better, the best Dagnasty vocalist. And, and the reason he is is because his voice has some vulnerability to it, and it comes across as very honest. Not to say that Smalley doesn't come across as honest, but Samoa didn't write the lyrics of those songs or the melodies, so those are Baker songs. So you're just hey, but Smalley sang them like he did. Yeah, he, he did. Oh, dude, the class track, I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying, but with Pete, he or Peter, he like wrote lyrics and he wrote melodies and there's a vulnerability to it. So I wrote the song. It just was, I could tell I was ripping him, his vocal style, and it was so, like, there's parts from like, man, it sounds like Pete Porter. <laughs> and then I'm like, well, I know him. I mean, he should just do it because and it's a very sad song. It's, a, it's an autobiographical, it's a pretty autobiographical song in some ways. It's about like kind of being older and like, you know, like, all right, like, we're now what? You know, and, it's, and so like, you're literally looking back at your life and like, like kind of realizing like, you know, like time's not on your side much anymore. So you're like missing out on like things you should have done. Like, and, and, and I think Pete, you know, we think alike like that. So he crushes that song. Um, but yeah, that's kind of a thing. I love, I love having like a guest vocalist on it. I just think it's just, you know, I, I, and I think it's cool to have like if Derek O'Brien sings harmonies on this. I think it's good to like have other voices in there helping you because it can get, you know, you're, you know, you, it can just get, it just breaks it up. It makes it more dynamic to like have us all of a sudden different type of voice and stuff. Is it, is it fair to say that that second record... Well, the, sun, the sun just came through the window. Yeah, I know. I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it. Is, is it fair to say that on that second record, I sort of look at that as sort of Trigger Man's kind of southern record. Is it fair to say that it kind of has a little bit the of that learning, happening? The, the, the Learning to Lie record? Yeah. I didn't even look at it like that. I mean, you have to say Learning to Lie, like I said, like those songs are old songs, and the lyrics for the most part are old lyrics. Um, I had to change some of them. I was going through a, I was going through a breakup, so so I kind of threw in some, some mod, I modernized. They're learning to lie, you know, and stuff like that. Target me, but for the most part, they're like, they're older songs. So I never looked at it that way. I, I just knew. I know it's mellow. Um, it's it's a weird record because it's 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 you know it's like basically like demos. It's from different parts of Trigger Man's era. Like even your sevens we put out a ring song. Right. I didn't want I didn't want those songs to be on the record. So I'm like, these did these songs. That just came out like Lucky Destination Angel. There's no reason to put them out, but Gavin was like, no, I want to re-record them. I want them to be like sound better, so we record those like on a four track of Gavin covers. You did them on a four track. You gave me the four track, and I took it and had it mastered. And <laughs> good for you. I, I mean, I don't know why we did it. That's the thing about the guy. You know, I, I was at Ignite and that first demo. Like, I think about that all the time. Like, we did the fucking demo on a four track in Brett's closet. It's so raw <laughs> and put that out in the world. Like, why didn't we just go to a studio and just do a fucking demo for like, we record the fucking thing in two days. Could have gone to a studio and just done it. I just don't, I, I don't know. Those are the things you wish you could go back and go like, whoa, man, like you can do better. Now, 
with with that. I'm just gonna move this to the light. Okay. Impression. With that, with this second record, and we're kind of coming to probably, you know, you know, we've been, we've been, been talking, dude. I'm, I'm we've been going for over an hour. Don't worry, we're almost. Yeah, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's gonna be a four-hour conversation. Oh, it's gonna be great. It's, I'm debating in my mind: Do I put this all up as one thing, or do I break it into because ch- if I break it into chunks, they're gonna be long, long chunks. So, um, you do whatever you need to do. I'm just you, you, you need to wait. Your show. You're the host. How well, do you want to do it? No, it's um, I'm just I'm just looking at that record, and honestly, and I think you would agree. This isn't. I don't think. I think anyone that's been following the band would agree with this. The current record would not exist if it was not for this second record. Because I remember talking to oh, you yeah. about this, and you were playing me Bleeder, and Bleeder sounded so different than from when you guys initially did it. Did it. Yeah. And my, I remember just saying to you, like, you guys just don't care anymore. But like in a good way. And you're like, yeah, dude, what do we have to care yeah, about? I, mean, I think, I think when, when me and Gavin got back together to do that Learn to Lie record, that was something we always talked about. It was frustrating because, you know, because we just didn't put out a second album. We had the material like we, you know, and then and, and no one was really interested in doing that. And we should have just done it ourselves. Like it's just a, you know, there's all these things you, you think about, but we also should have toured. Like we had a US tour book with like sheltering into another and all these great bands that we bailed on because we were like, oh we can't go on tour. I gotta go to class. You know, so all these mistakes you made, like, you know, like um we always wanted to get back together and do that. Try to make a record. We talked about it quite a bit. And then once we were able we did become friends with Derek O'Brien, who plays in Junk Social Distortion DI and has his own studio, like I said, and we, he recorded some Killing Flame stuff, which is another band me and Gavin had done. And so we went to him and we're like, hey man, if we recorded Trigger Man, would you play drums? Would you play drums on this, right? And he was like, yeah, of course, I'd love to. I'm like, okay, that's cool, because he's a great drummer and he's got a studio. And then originally we wanted Brian Howell, the original bass player, to be in there. Um, that Unfortunately, that didn't work out, and it's no, no fault of Brian's. Um, he, uh, we just kind of, I don't want to say anything. I love Brian, and, and, and I don't want to but he just didn't work out. Like he just didn't, I just didn't feel like he was ready to record when it was time to record. And I don't know why that is, but he just didn't feel like he had uh, the songs down, even the old songs. Um, and that was, that made us nervous because we were paying for this ourselves. It wasn't for free. So I knew Brett Rasmussen from the night, who's an amazing bass player. Right. Professional music. So I just was like, I had to let my good friend who was part of this band go, which sucks. Because he was upset, and rightfully so, and it's a shitty thing to fucking do to be like, "Hey, man, I know you're part of the family. You can't be on this new thing." It's just like, fucking suck. But once Brett was in the band, and Brett and Derek were locked in together, we were just like, "Oh, dude, like these songs are going to be sick because these guys can fucking play." Like Brett and Derek together, it's just like, like was that similar to when you got Popeye and Kevin in the band, kind of? Kind of, but I, I will say this as much as I love Kevin Murphy, like, he's a little loose on drums, like, like he's a great drummer, he's interesting, but, like, he was a little loose, we don't practice a lot, Popeye's obviously super talented, I, lo- I loved having that lineup, because Popeye would do set guitar and, and vocals and stuff, and I thought that was probably the strongest we were live, um, but it was, yeah, it was just one of those things, once you, and you're old, once you have, like, these guys who are, like, pros, and, and talking music, me and Gavin don't speak the language of music, like, you know, like, 
what is it again? A minor, to, you know, like, and like Derek and Brett are just like riffing on their musicians. And so like, we're like, oh shit, this is going to go like clockwork. And then that foundation I thought was really great. And I and, and, and but the problem with that record, like I'm saying is that it, it, it's because it was recorded in parts it's like different eras. It doesn't seem cohesive. I mean, it's a cool record. It's obviously recorded all at the same time. So that makes sense. But like, there's the Go-Go's cover in there. Right. These old demos, like One Minute Wonder and stuff. And then you're seven inches in there. And then there's like these kind of unfinished songs like uh, Follow You and stuff that we have that we kind of finished. So I felt like it was kind of like a hodgepodge, almost like a compilation of like seven inches. And with this new record, that's why it's, we were excited to write it because it was like, we're going to write this from scratch. Like, this, is, this isn't old stuff. This is like brand new, you know, Trigger Man stuff. Well, you know, to take it back to movies... You have Dead Like Me, which is like a very original album. And then, so the follow-up to, you know, most original movies, any director's follow-up, generally the second movie isn't as good. It, it shows some of the promise, but it just... Yeah, yeah. And then the third movie is like, okay, this is why we came, because of the first. And, and so, I don't know, maybe yeah, it ties it, all back to A Place in the it Sun. Took us 30 years. It took us 30 years to get to the third movie, you know? Well, I think you're right because I feel like with with this now it's like like I said there's a there was such a freedom to it because there's confidence and like you know me and Gavin finished this record and we're like oh I was like I actually feel like a real musician for the first time in my life doing this record with you and he was just like laughing because like oh yeah because like it's complicated the arrangements are complicated it's not like there's some hardcore structures in there and you'll hear things like that but there's some jam parts I mean it gets spatial there's a lot of atmospheric like if you listen to it with headphones especially it's mixed for headphones intentionally because I kind of figure everyone's got these now and they're going to listen to their phone. So that's how we try to mix it so that sounds like swirl, like the cars come from right to left and pan, why like there's a keyboard sound going one way. It's very uh, ambitious. It's a very ambitious record. I'm, and I'm stoked on it. Like, and, I, and I feel like, like I said, I feel really flattered that people have heard it and have been like, oh, this is fucking cool and this is really interesting. And like, you know, if nothing else, like Dan said, I saw the O'Mahony post on Facebook. It's like, at least we're going for something. It's a conversation piece. Like, okay, like, you might hate it, but at the same time, it's like, well, these guys took a swing. Well, you know? to sort of leave you and to sort of just end on this thought, you know, you said that you were, you know, you guys were kind of thinking in, in the mixes and stuff like that for, you know, the ear pods and stuff like that. What were you thinking about when you did Dead Like Me or even the Trigger Man demos? You were thinking about a car. I wasn't really thinking about anything because I wasn't savvy with the recording. I was thinking about trying to write songs. I didn't understand, you know, like the production value. Like record, we recorded Dead Like Me at West Beach Studio, with, which is with Brett Gerwitz's studio. Great studio. Um, but we recorded that at a different time. And we were just, I wasn't even thinking like that because it was like, these are songs we demo, we play live. I'm just trying to make them sound like that. Like this, this, once at this type of record, I understand recording process way much way better i understand like what people are devices people are listening to like I, i'm conscious of that at least and there's no real since there's no live agenda and there's no real like okay man we, you know, like i said like we have the luxury of not being a band that's going to make a concept record because it doesn't matter if it hurts us or helps us it's like we're just having fun so um it, it, we've come a long way and we're you know in our development is like songwriters Gavin and I because we and this is all part of the puzzle because I would never have thought making dead like me like how are people listening to this music and to your point oh it's gonna be through a car so let's like listen to the mix in the car it's like I wasn't even thinking like that 
Well, I just remember when Farside was recording Rochambeau, like Jim Monroe, like giving them a mix, like on a tape and saying, listen, go and listen to this in the car because if it sounds good in the car, it's going to sound good everywhere. Yeah. I'm, well, that, but that's, yeah, Jim Monroe's a, a, you know, the great, he's a great producer and he, and he and. Or it may have been E. <laughs> well, well, whatever. I'm just saying like that makes sense because Jim would think like that. Uh, and so would, you know, Popeye and, and Rob Hayworth were sophisticated musicians for the time. So they would have thought, I would think they would think like that. Like we were just like, you know, I guess we, we would go listen to it. And, you know, Donald Cameron who recorded Trigger Man, we would go listen to mixes in the car. I mean, that did happen. I never looked at, the, I just figured that was the easiest way to listen to it. Like, oh, scratch your car and listen. So I never thought like this is how it should sound. But it makes sense that Jim would do that. Remember that one night we were in Santa Ana and my car broke down? And I really wanted you to give me that Trigger Man tape, and you said that you would, and then you threw it against the wall. No, I don't remember that. It sounds like something I would do, though. <laughs>